Welcome to The Lucent Perspective. I'm your host, Rebecca Hastings. I've spent over a decade working with executives in the tech sector and helped successful companies build their leadership teams and scale. During my career, I've been lucky to have the privilege of learning from many exceptional leaders. In these conversations, you'll get perspectives from peers, be inspired, and learn what it takes to become one of the best. This is your chance to listen to experts talking about the challenges, solutions, and the vital insights they've gained in their careers to date. Diversity of opinion, diversity of background and experience is what I think builds the greatest and most successful team. But it needs to be a team that is sufficiently consolidated that they can actually work together. And they can't just be pulling in completely different directions, otherwise you won't make any progress. I'm joined by Richard Quinn. Until recently, Richard held the role of Chief Operating Officer at Kepler, which is a fast-growing data and analytics business serving the commodity markets. Prior to this, he was the Chief Strategy Officer and he led a strategic transformation of the business which opened up new areas of growth. Interestingly enough, underpinning the firm's first fundraising, which was $200 million. Prior to Kepler, Richard was Chief of Staff for Trustpilot, the customer review platform. There, among other things, he was responsible for helping to develop and implement Trustpilot's strategy ahead of their London listing in 2021. And before that, he worked for Verisk Analytics and Wood McKenzie in a number of senior roles, devising and executing strategy, undertaking M&A, and leading some quite substantial teams there. So I'm super excited to have Richard as a guest, and I think there's loads that we can learn from him about leadership, mergers and acquisitions, and scaling businesses. Richard, obviously, you've had a career that involves some really fast-growing and rapidly evolving companies. Tell me, first of all, a little bit about your journey to the C-suite so that people have that context. Thank you very much for the, the introduction, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be here. My my journey to the C-suite is, like many people, it's, it's not a linear, straightforward, you know, one role leading to another. There have been periods where there was the opportunity to see ahead. Um, and so I think of my early years, there was you know, bigger teams, bigger teams, more responsibility and complexity. But there was a pivotal moment at Wood McKenzie where I went from you know, leading functional teams to you know, working with the CEO of that business and, and the transformation there of perspective, if you like, was to go from one part of the business and understanding it to understanding all parts of the business and how you bring those elements together. And that, that role at Woodmac, supporting this, this chief executive, you know, then opened doors into Verisk Analytics, which you know, refined my approach to how do you, you know, tackle strategy formation, you know, what does execution really mean, um, and particularly M&A, and, and, and then you know, my first C-suite role into Trustpilot allowed me to bring together you know, those two pieces of the puzzle. How do you help run a business um, and what does growth look like and how do you accelerate it? I guess it would be good to like find out a little bit more about your insights around scaling transactions and leadership, as I'd said. So first of all, I'd like to start with scaling. What, there's a couple of companies you've worked in that have scaled. So it would be great to know, first of all, a bit about the kind of like common obstacles you saw um, and you know any warning signs that you know, a leader who's listening to this could be vigilant for in their company. Agreed. And, and scaling is, is one of the buzzwords of the industry and something that all companies are looking to do where you, you, know, you deliver more product at a more efficient rate than you previously did. But at a, at a really tactical level, that is often hard to define and describe. And so when, you know, as a leadership team, you are you know, looking to scale and given the challenge to scale by the board, you know, one of the first steps is, is what, what, what does that really mean for us, right? As we, as we think about the next hire, you know, is it better to get somebody into sales? Is it better to get someone into, into technology, into engineering? You know, where is the greatest opportunity to scale across our organization? And, and often it's, it's very unclear where that, that scale can come from. Um, and particularly when you think of all divisions will be asking for more people and, and you need to break the cycle of more people delivers more growth because um, you know, that is a classic mindset. No, that then leads into the challenge of well, no, how do you determine the priorities? You know, there will be, you know, like all good businesses, 200 good priorities, and you need to be able to whittle that down to a manageable number that actually allow them to, to meet the definition of a priority. You, know, you can't do everything immediately. 
Um, you know, not everything will deliver the same benefit. You know, some will be fixing a hole in your, your back office. Some will be op- opening up a new market or a new product. Which of those is more important um, and which gives you, you know, confidence to scale sooner? You know, that, is, that is not a straightforward question. Um, and then, you know, that then leads to alignment around, you know, does the business really work together um, to deliver that? Yeah, totally. And it's great to hear you say that more people doesn't always deliver growth because there's companies that I've worked with over the years, they think they're scaling because they're throwing bodies at the problem. They're not getting any like increase in productivity that's more that like, you know, it's above the regular proportion. It becomes a little bit linear. And I think people think that that's, you know, like, quite a bit of success attached to having a big team rather than, you know, the opposite of how could I have done that with fewer people? Because that would be more cost effective, probably faster sometimes. Agreed. Agreed. And and, and more, more, more people means longer communication chains, more complexity, more buy-in. Um, at the same time, more people brings diversity of opinion. And, yeah, and so you bring true. in you know, new expertise. And so you know, if you're entering Asia, having someone who has been and lived through that experience is, is absolutely critical. So so some some you know, new employees and new people to the business is, is, is a very logical addition. And others, it's, it's more difficult to determine how that's going to fit in and how that's going to add to the growth. And the other thing that Sean threw to me was really that kind of like strategic prioritization and mm-hmm. I, th- I think, you know, like when you're busy, it's it's easy to forget to do those things. But you know, before you're adding headcount to things, I guess it's always good to think: what's the beyond? What's the purpose of the role? What's the business need? You know, how does this enable growth? But then, how does this enable me to grow faster and better than any of my competitors and gain some kind of advantage? I, I, I agreed, and. You know, there's a real balancing act between prioritizing down to, I don't know, three to five things that you think are, are worth investing in and putting people and time and effort and focus behind without losing the, the flexibility to deal with market change, right? And, you know, and, and depending on the nature of the business, things can come and go in their enthusiasm and, and you know, is this really going to deliver what we imagined it to? And so what you're not, you, you need to create an opportunity to come together and deliver on the plan without losing flexibility that you can adapt to a regulatory change or you know, and a competitor does something and, and you need to be able to respond to that. So it, it, it's not a you know, determining the strategy, the how do you deliver on a goal needs to be really flexible and constantly reevaluated um, so that you, you know, A, spend enough time making progress on a new product development versus you know, um, flip-flopping so much that you never get anything done. And, uh, and, and there's, there's, there's a bit of magic in there. When you were at Trustpilot, one of the things that we discussed was how you helped really, like, scale their sales and marketing operations. And, like, I would say that what you did there is true scaling. So can you tell me a bit about that and what happened there? Yeah, the the, the business is an enormous um, – and a factory of data, if you like. So it is collecting consumer reviews across thousands of different businesses by you know tens of thousands of, of consumers and organizing that information internally, not just for you know consumers to understand the review profile of a particular vendor that they might be interacting with, but making it available to the sales force so that they call the, the right business at the right time to you know, effectively help someone, their, you know, the customer to scale, right? Now, when does a customer who's c- currently collecting 10 reviews a month, but they think they can get to 30, at what point do you, you call them to say, we can help you take that jump from 10 to 30? Is it at 15 or is it at 27 reviews a month? And so, so the internal you know, data and analytic tools um, that were built was you know, partly around dashboards that allowed prospects to be high graded across all geographies where you know you would put in front of a sales executive you know the best 10 companies to call um, and that you know, that was meeting you know, each of those customers each of those prospects would be at the right stage in their maturity and the use of the free version of the product 
to then be able to convert into a um, a paying customer. So it was bringing and unearthing that information to effectively empower ourselves to be more effective. The second piece of the puzzle was a simplification of what we were selling. Um, you know, sort of the ethos of that project was, you know, how do we make it simple to buy and simple to sell? And previously, there was lots of iterations of the product and there was complexity of whether modules were in or out and, you know, am I going to be able to get automatic reviews collection at this scale in this geography? And our new packaging and pricing took away a lot of that complexity. It was a lot more transparent to the customer of what they were actually getting for a particular price point. It better matched... You know, the range of businesses that Trustpilot serve, whether they be, you know, very, very small businesses where there are you know, two employees all the way through to large enterprise global businesses with hundreds of thousands of employees. And, you know, the, the, the product was adaptable to that. And the way that we sold, therefore, scaled alongside those. So it just, it just transformed, you know, the time to acquire a new paying customer went from, you know, many, many days and often weeks to months down to, you know, we, we improve that to, to hours in many cases. Amazing. That's the salesperson's dream. It, 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 when, when they really got onto it, it, it um, and you worked out how to utilize it, it made them a lot more effective. So, yes, the, the commissions, commissions were bolstered in the process. <laughs> that, I'm sure that made you very popular. Simplifying processes is... I sometimes think like much harder than me, than overcomplicating them. Com- com- completely agree, and it's you know by the definition of simplifying, it's actually not simple at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so therefore, how, how do you do it effectively? How do you, you know, design to the majority, not to the ex- the, you know, the all of the ex- the exceptions to the rule? You know, there are things in there that you can you can follow, but you know, it's it often takes a lot of common sense to make work. Yeah. And it's not just about having access to the data and the data being good or as simple as knowing how to analyze, like like being able to analyze the data. I think it's sometimes about knowing the right questions to ask. In an ever-changing environment, that's really tough. I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I think the the other part of it, and, and I, this wasn't my responsibility, but you know, there was a gentleman who was incredibly effective at doing this was effectively treating our own sales team as the customer. Now, how do you put an internal product in front of them that they have been part of the journey of, of designing it, they have been part of the journey of how, so that they feel empowered rather than being given yet another software tool that they've got to use. Um, and you know, their, their resistance to using internal tooling was, was often pretty high because it was seen as being, oh, you know, I've got to fill in more data into Salesforce, for example, mm-hmm. one of many. No, this was, this, there was a real stakeholder management piece to get their buy-in rather than just you know, thrusting a, uh, a new product and saying, use this, this will be, make you more effective. You know, that was both insulting and you know, we needed their, their input into making it work. Um, and there was a particular German who I won't name who did that incredibly well um, at you know, interacting between two parts of the business, those building and, and, and creating the internal product and unearthing the data and then you know, working with the sales force, you know, the global organization to make that actually work. Interesting. So... Overall, you know, scaling is not simple. What would be the, the the main thing that you would advise a company to watch out for or to focus on? Um, good, good question. I think you're trying to strike the balance between having a healthy debate around, you know, what is the best thing to do. So, you know, anything that looks like false harmony um, is something to be really mindful of. Nor do you want no, no misalignment to to pervade where nothing gets done. <laughs> so you're looking for creating an environment where you know the senior team and then everybody um, who does does all the real work is able to see that there has been a healthy debate around should we do A versus B. We've decided to go for B. Right, let's all get behind that. And so, you know, creating an environment where there is you no know, different difference of opinion, and that's entirely healthy. Um, and, and Patrick Lencioni has described this as healthy, which is the reason why I'm using that word. Um, of 
Now, how do you create that trust and humility in, across your, your senior people so that they can say, look, I, d- I don't understand why that would be the right thing. You know, please help me with, with why you think or why you're so committed to that. And that person not feeling that as a personal attack, but actually just a, an intellectually rigorous discussion of you know, one, one option versus the other. Yeah, and I think it's often overlooked in terms of attributes in leaders is that ability to have dialogue rather than just communicate. That they're they're totally different um, skills, but they're you know easily t- confused. Completely, and you know, leading a business is all about really driving change and and fundamentally delivering change meets you know, resistance by people who who perceive or, or are right in recognizing that change will mean loss, right? It'll be a loss of influence or a loss of control or you know, their job needs to change and they're quite comfortable working with exactly how they're operating. And that my example of using the salespeople, you know, they were a key stakeholder in delivering the, the scaling of that, of that operation. Why? Because they were quite happy operating with their existing process. Right? No, they didn't want to have to work in a different way. They needed to be gently given the opportunity to make that transition into a new way of high-grading who they call and, and their prospect list. And many thought they were very good at it, and they, you know, some of them were. But as, as an enterprise and an organization, you know, we needed the majority to transform in the way that they identified who, who they should call in at the right time. And you know, all of this you know, is, a, is a transformation of the organization. And there are you know, always a hundred reasons why change is, is sort of resisted by, by individuals at the C-suite or, or the masses you know, who you don't understand or are resistant to it. So moving on, like while you were at Veris, Guidmac and Kepler, you were involved in a lot of strategic M&A activity I think at one point during a three-year period, you're involved in the acquisition of seven companies with a combined transaction value of $400 million, whilst also being involved in preparing for the sale of Woodmag to Verisk. And I know that more recently you've been involved in more acquisition activity and, and more transactions. So it would be great to get your insights into the following. So like, first of all, when should a company seek to grow via acquisition? Because we've covered off the you know, throwing bodies versus scaling. When, when do you think acquisition is key? Good question. I think particularly with the businesses that we were looking to buy from, it is where through M&A you can get access to assets faster or faster, more quickly, more convincingly, or cheaper than if you were to build them. And the data and analytic world that I've worked in for many, many years, there is often enormous value attributed to the historical aggregation of data over many, many years. So you you can't just restart being competitive in a new space if you're missing the previous 20 years of commodity data or fiscal data in Algeria or whatever the example might be. And so as, as an M&A play at Woodmac and Verisk, we were looking for data assets that were, were truly unique and proprietary. And the, the often the only way to get access to them was to buy the business that we had spent the previous decade or more building that data um, that was unique in the market. And, you know, and we, you know, we spent a lot of time you know, discarding things that didn't meet that criteria. You know, if it doesn't have proprietary data, let's not do it. Now, that, that, that philosophy and that strategic logic doesn't apply to every business. And, and certainly the m that we were doing at, at Kepler, we didn't follow that you know, sort of routinely. You know, that was, you know, the first deal was partly around customer acquisition. You know, we were winning with a better product in the U.S. market, um, it was going to take time. <laughs> I know each contract as it renews, you know, we might win it or we might not. We were doing pretty well. Wouldn't it be better if we just buy out the competition and get it done and all in one foul swoop? And, and that's the opportunity we... So that, that was an acceleration point um, rather than a proprietary data. And, and it turned out that Clipper data had fantastic data that we ultimately benefited from by getting access to as well. So... So it's, it's context is everything, right? There's there's no sort of you know we've had a certain size and scale, um, and and part of M and A is 
seeing it beyond just getting the deal done, right? There is clearly an enormous um, excitement and, and enthusiasm and everybody wants to be involved in you know, the sexy bit of getting the deal done. You know, that's not where the value is created. You know, the, the value is created in the months afterwards where you, know, you, you deliver on the plan of, of you know, integrating intelligently. So th- things that are going to get you to your end goal faster and cheaper, but also kind of like give you that leap or something that propels you forward. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a kind of classic individual who uses analogies all the time, right? And so if you think about it with the ingredients of a cake, right? And if, if this is the only place to get eggs or flour or milk to bake your cake, well, then you, know, you, you, you find, find a way of doing that rather than pretending you can you know, get, get it elsewhere. Um, and, you know, and that's how you, know, you aggregate more data. And you know, the one plus one equals three philosophy was how we, we tended to operate. So beyond that, um, and you know, making sure that you're—I don't know—getting the eggs for your cake. To use your analogy, what what kind of things should you be looking for in a company? You know, if you're thinking about acquiring them, like is there anything you think that is easy to overlook or forget about? I think you know, all businesses are made up of people, um, and so you can take a very a very financial you know, microscope to a business and, and look at its growth and its quality of earnings and you know, net dollar retention and and you know, make a judgment of the quality of the business. You know, if, if you're thinking of the business being a sustainable you know, series of assets within your organization, you know, you need to be evaluating the people as well. And and, and that is a you know a, a cultural you know assimilation. Um and as well as a sort of, you know, are these the right people to take the business forward? So, so it's 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 a very, you know, in my my world, we, we we took a very structured approach to evaluating businesses. We measured, you know, the ripeness of the management team to grow. We measured the, um, you know, the penetration into the market and how how embedded is it into it into the ecosystem that it's selling into. Um, you know, is there a steady state of innovation? Are they continuing to redevelop? And all of those are, are nothing more than sort of key indicators of you know, innovation is a, is a great culture of reinventing yourself, right? So it, you know, it points to you know, people creating good things and thinking about how do we you know, remix the ingredients to come up with a different, a different outcome. Um, and, and part of that then also points to expertise, you know, is the business that is up for sale genuinely expert in their space? And you know, do you, are you sort of slightly intimidated by how much they know? Because um, you know, that's a great sign rather than you know, people who are um, you know, haven't been around long enough and don't really understand the, you know, the power market or, or the oil and gas market or whatever the space that you're exploring. Yeah, so there's some great things there to think about if you're going to look at acquiring a company, but also if you are a tech company or a data company that's looking to be acquired, I, it, I think that there people don't always think about um, articulating all the aspects of value that they offer. I, I, I agree, and I think I think younger companies are getting very good at it. Um, I think there is a lot more emphasis about and you know, designing your business with an exit in mind um, but for more established businesses that have been around for 20 years where you know they have been run you know typically by a founder who is an expert in, in their particular you know part of the industry and then they've built a business around her or him his their expertise you know they tend not to think of the exit until it actually happens um, and and therefore, you know, then there's a real opportunity for you know, thinking about how do you not just talk about what you've done up until now, but you know, what does the next ten years look like? Because you know, as a buyer, you are looking to the future, right? It's it's progress to date is good, right? It forms the foundation of an investment thesis, but actually, it's what comes next. Um, and you know, the more more the balance of growth comes from the target from, rather than the acquirer, the better, right? Yeah. How do they enable you to take that leap? Yes, yes, exactly. Not just the assets that they have. Totally agree. How do you make the integration process of you know these acquired companies a bit more smooth? Like it can be quite hard to merge different corporate cultures and make it easy to get value from people. You know, especially if you've identified that 
that is part of where the value is in that company. I could completely agree. And you know, integrations, the sort of the collective word for uncertainty and chaos, right? And if you know my my, my personal experience of having bought a number of businesses is as an employee of the of the, the business sold, the first reaction you need to address is you know, is my job on the line? You know, what does this mean for me, right? People personalize the, the, the corporate announcement immediately. And so therefore integration starts with people, right? If you don't, if you don't immediately connect with you know, the, the salesperson, the person in HR, the DevOps guy, all, all of those people will be thinking about it from their, their single lens. And I'm not, not, not being disrespectful of that. There's a very logical place. As, as the buyer, you need to you know, re-address that and recognize it and reassure. Um, otherwise, you lose the cloakroom in a heartbeat. Yeah. And so integration starts with the people. And then the sort of the, the more technical, t- tactical and technical steps can then follow. And they tend to, you know, my, my view, tend to follow the people. You know, you need to give people, you know, equalized communication access immediately so you know whatever whatever internal tools you're using to allow your own employees to communicate you need to throw that into the new business on day two right now here's access to you know, a new email system here's access to our slack or, or teams platform whichever you use you know you are a new part of the acquiring company we're welcoming you rather than that taking two weeks because they will feel like second class citizens immediately yeah, it's like joining a new company and not having a laptop on day one. It's just it's the same thing. It's it is the start of a new job for people. You see it in how people update their LinkedIn profile or present their CVs in time. You know, psychologically, it's a it's a, it's a landmark for the end of an era. Agreed, and and, and they will have you know twenty five legitimate questions on you know on things that pertain to the business. And you know the acquirer's enthusiasm for their part of the organisation. You know, do we need two marketing teams? You know, are you going to invest in my office in Tokyo? You know, which operating system do you use? And you know, I really like Outlook. You know, do we have to go to Google Mail? Um, you know, there are dozens of little things that you know. The more you can identify those up front and have the beginnings of an answer, even if it's we don't know yet. Um, you you begin to make the steps towards trust, where they see you as, as transparent versus avoiding the question, and then all that that vacuum just creates you know, more problems than you um, you know than you can imagine. Um, so, and, and, and the, the part of integration is is being very very tactical once 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 the transaction is is completed and it's being announced. You, you know, there needs to be a, a sort of a very focused team of people who are there living and breathing it to deal with all of those things as they turn up because you know, no matter how good the planning and the due diligence beforehand, someone will ask that you've never considered, you know, that server is about to expire, do we, do we re- renew the licence? What? You know, why would uh, – hang on, what server? When? It's happening tomorrow. You know, what, what are we going to do about that, right? You know, but we're cloud-based and you're talking at physical server, right? You need to know, you, there goes six hours as you make a, a, try and make a good informed decision about what you do with a piece of hardware. And that will turn up immediately. So, so there need to be people dedicated for the intense amount of work for the intervening, you know, the initial weeks into months to address all of those things as they pop up. Um, and then it fades relatively quickly and, and people go back to their day job. And again, sorry to oversimplify, but it you know it sounds like the key takeaway I'm getting is you know really making sure that you've got the resources so that you can build trust with people to kind of like calm down the chaos and um, you know give you know a lot of upfront transparency and information to mitigate that uncertainty. It, it is, and it's it's hard resource for a company to carry. You know, even you know, even big organisations like Verisk, you know, the number of people who were absolutely dedicated to integration was was one, right? You know, and and the rest of it is flexible. Where you come from a finance background or an IT background or an HR background, and you play a role for a period of time. Um, so it, it is always flexible, but the but you're absolutely right. It is um, it is hands on. 
in a, in a non-physical sense with how do you tackle the challenges that turn up really quickly. And, and so if you're going to have a good example, and you know, we kept the border business in Vienna and you know, we had to have people on the ground from the day it was announced and you know, there was an individual who, who led that integration over the next six months and was there every week. Part of it was just to reassure, part of it was to you know, provide, certainly part of it was to get resourcing for certain equipment changes and lead the office transformation and so forth and so forth. But it was you know, it was their day job every single day. Um, and you know, and that, that, that was a very successful process because you know, someone was given the task of leading. And recently at Kepler, you helped raise $200 million of external investment, which in itself is really interesting. But what I thought was like, pretty unusual is that they were only founded in 2014 and this was the first time that they had raised any external investment. Now, most people, when they're going out to raise funds for the first time, I don't know, it might be a small seed round of a million pounds or completely different amount of money and much earlier in their journey. So Mm -hmm. what kind of complexities did that add to the deal? There was a well. There was a real discipline around how Kepler went from foundation to the scale that it had achieved. Right, that that sort of element of bootstrapping is both recognition of the business model, um, which is in, in itself you know, incredibly value accretive, and you know the discipline of of the two founders, Francois and Jean, were were incredibly. Um, disciplined in the way that they you know, strong dependency on technology, less focus on people, and, and no ego about building scale just by adding more people because it would you know, look look good on 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 their you know, on the website and on LinkedIn. Um, and at the at the point of raising, it was you know, clearly one of the di- sort of discussion points and the respect shown by the investors for exactly you know this is extraordinary. How did you get here? So there was interest in it, um, but I don't think it added complexity to the sale, and it certainly didn't lessen nor increase you know their their normal scrutiny for is this a good investment for for. Uh, for their particular firm, right? They, they're still digging into, you know, tell, me, tell me what customers are doing and why would a customer review and who else are you going to sell to and what else are you building and growing and where is the, where is the growth going to come from? None of those questions were less because we were bootstrapped. Um, it, was just, it was just a bigger ticket size. Um, and so if anything, they were you know, uh, in awe as, as well as respectful. Very interesting. It sounds like... There had been a lot of discipline over the years within the business. Just, just, just absolutely, um, and you know, a, a sort of a relentless focus on on delivering value. You know, let's build things people will will look to buy rather than you know vanity projects or, or products that don't necessarily connect um, with with value. Yeah, that's and it's easy to get distracted. So that like laser focus obviously paid off completely completely and and you know, the business is very lean right it, you know it's sort of you know thanks to covid it's very very remote first um i know there is you know, very few roles that are, are sort of ancillary to to building your product and, and driving the business forward um and and you know, that leads to great economics so I know that some of the companies that you've worked with you've been involved in like restructuring and I, I know that one of the companies you helped restructure a leadership team and stuff. I think people are actually looking at how their C-suite is composed just now and I can see some changes and certainly there's, after a period of really low turnover, that that's starting to pick up. So what tips would you give to um, maybe a CEO or you know, whoever has been tasked with this pros- project um, around looking at the composition of a leadership team if they're thinking about making some changes? Good, good question. And it sort of harks back to the question of how do you scale and uh, what, what, which, which of the C-suite roles do we need to um, put in place and uh, who, who owns which responsibilities and, uh, is, is a really difficult question. And, uh, is, is there more value in um, you know, one role versus another, right? And, uh, the CRO role versus a head of sales and uh, in that kind of debate. And 
So you know, without getting sort of tied up into each and every role and what they might or might not do, at a, at a more general level, it's, it's creating a team that can fundamentally work together, right? And that sounds really, really obvious, but you are looking for people who you know, are respectful of the team, are respectful for the contributions of each of the various parties, but also have enough um, authority to you know, bring their, you know, their self to the table and saying, I think we should do this versus this. And, 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 and that, that sounds simple, but it's not. Um, I know people, you know, it's, it's very natural for people to represent just their own function rather than seeing the bigger picture. Um, you know, I think we should just invest in more salespeople. I think we should just invest in more engineers. And, and therefore, how do you judge which is a better investment? Doesn't just come from who shouts loudest at the C-suite. Um, and so having a team who think as, at a collective rather than just representing their individual functions is, is part of the balance. And, and so, you know, whilst diversity has lots of meanings for different people, diversity of opinion, diversity of background and experience is what I think you know, builds the greatest and most successful team. But it needs to be a team that is sufficiently um, consolidated that they can actually work together. You know, they can't just be tearing each other apart and, and you know, pulling in completely different directions. Otherwise, you won't make any progress. Yeah, going back to um, what we were discussing earlier about communication, if that is not strong in a leadership team, it's going to filter down throughout the business. People will pick up on it. The messages will be inconsistent. And really, you know, I guess what you're what I'm picking up from you is it's just about making sure that how your team is constructed should be like aligned with what is the fastest way to grow and how do we get to where we need to be what, what adds the most value to the business right now um alongside yeah but then you can't just look at those are the roles you actually have to think is this new team going to work the same way? Because there, there will, you know, you're going to have to like mix up the <laughs> dynamics if you're changing the type of jobs profiles that you have in that C-suite. I can completely agree, and, and part of you know creating a collaborative team is is being very clear on who's doing what, right? You know, you, you set up you know unnecessary conflict. Um, if you, you know, if you give overlapping responsibility, you know, who owns the voice of the customer is, is, is a great example. Now, is that a product only responsibility? Is that a marketing only responsibility? Is that a sales only? No, you know, everybody has a very different touch points and not forgetting customer success and the types of business I work for. And so, you know, you need to disentangle that kind of, I'm the single owner of the voice of the customer. No, I'm sorry. Now, there are lots of people who can contribute to that understanding of who we are serving as a business. Um, and so therefore being very clear that even though we're appointing a, a chief marketing officer and you know, they bring all sorts of expertise, you know, they don't singularly own in what some businesses is where we're the voice of the customer. No, no, you know, you're part of the discussion, but you're not, yeah. that's not just your, your gig. Um, and being clear and upfront on that is as best possible because you know, that, that, that creates you know, unnecessary tension in a business where it should just be well, what, what do all these signals mean? You know, one, part of, one part of a customer is saying this, another part is saying this, another part is saying this. What does that actually mean and how should we you know, best react to that? Interesting. So I guess at this point in time, I like going down a level from the C-suite, I think there's a growing sense amongst middle management and leaders who are um, like nurturing that talent or um, working alongside them, that there just seems to be um, a, a real increase in pressure, uh, longer work hours. I think people feel like, the, you know, there, there is a, a different, like there is a bit of tension, like they really have to show their value and mm -hmm. is, you know, stress levels are maybe slightly higher. I think you can see it in the way that some people are just responding to changes in, you know, work style between, you know, like return to the office. Um, it's, it's not that they're yes. being asked to do it. It's like how they are managing that. But what do you think the C-suite can do to like, get more out of like their team and their leaders without compromising their kind of like, wellness and mental health further? Good, good question. I, I've been with two businesses where, in fact, more than that, sorry, is 
where, where trust is a critical sort of ingredient in how do you how do you get the best out of people, and you know creating an environment where you know, somebody can you know excel, share their views, be you know, bring to the table what they really are, rather than creating an environment where they are second guessing what you really mean or what you really are looking for, and so creating clarity of expectations. Is, is one of the most valuable things you can create as a leader, right? You know, this is what good looks like. This is the outcome that we need. I'm going to partly you know, delegate this because you've got all the skills to do that completely without me, but this I'm going to be involved with, and this is how we're going to work. And this is and, and allowing somebody to you know, bring their approach to the problem. So how are we going to get to the goal is their problem. Um but being super clear on that um, and, and and critically clarity and, and what's important changes all the time. Yeah. Right? So you know, it, it's not it's not that I'm not talking sort of um, objectives over a whole year that can be written in January and then you, know, you, you talk about it intermittently and then it's finally ticked off in December. I'm talking about things that change on a weekly or a monthly basis where – at one point, it's this is the most important thing, but then next week it's going to be something else because of an external environment. And it being clear around that so that people can respond and know why. And then the clarity is also in a context, right? Why is this important, right? And so all good strategic um, articulation to the businesses, in my experience, it's just partly about giving context. Now, why is this important? Um, and the more, more people understand that, the more they can make well-informed decisions of what they are going to do to contribute rather than going, I've just been asked to you know, do this. I don't know why. It feels boring. And therefore, that's utterly demoralizing. Totally. And context is absolutely crucial in, you know, as a dimension in helping people to like feel like they're more in control of what's happening around them. And a lot of stress, mm-hmm. pressure, you know, it... For many people, it comes back to, well, certainly for me, it's when I don't have, like, I feel like things are out of control, but it is the most stressful. Uh, you know, if you don't mm-hmm. have any, if, you, if you're not able to have any autonomy and make those decisions yourself, then it's really hard. But I guess all of those mm-hmm. things are just, you know, about building trust and not throwing, like, fancy mm-hmm. wellness um, offerings and you know well washing your business. It can, can completely sort of at a very tactical level, it's understanding the people you work with, right? You know, what motivates them? What's going on around their 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 work version of themselves? Um, you know, are they you know, happy at home? Are they you know, getting fitter? Are they not? You know, what, what's driving them? And and then you know supporting how that connects with what you need to achieve as a business. Um, and, that, and that's that's part of the you know it's not not bending everything around and everybody gets to do what they want because that's not how organisations achieve great things, but it's connecting what somebody brings you know on a, on a Monday morning with what the business is trying to achieve, um, and so putting the right people onto the right task at the right time is is part of the decision of the leader. And if you get that right, it's incredibly impactful. If you get it wrong, and you will, and I have then you know, it creates all of the stress that you're talking about and, and you need to try and address those as quickly as possible when you realise you've made a mistake. Because part of, part of the downside of thinking you can create clarity and context is often you don't know, right? And often it is not clear exactly where things are going or why things are changing and that, that uncertainty can affect the C-suite. You know, and the CEO just as much as you know, everybody else in the business. And so recognizing when you don't know the answer, you know, I don't know if we're going to do this or this, let's just keep keep working on it until that becomes clear, is often the help that somebody needs, right? Yeah, it, totally. And again, you know, you, we keep coming back to like words like clarity and simplification. And these are, I feel like we need to have a separate discussion one day but the complexities of those simple concepts exactly and you know the sort of things that i i have learned over many years of of you know, too much adherence to business jargon rather than just trying to speak plainly um and you know, dealing with your own uncertainties let alone the, the uncertainties of your team and you know, all, all of this is a you know a long-term 
accumulation of skills and experience that we're all going through. So it's not done, nor is it I'm an expert versus not. Um, it's it's you know, and they need to give people a bit of bit of um, leeway with that in mind. Mm-hmm. And but I think that in order to achieve any of those things, there's a couple of common like traits that will make that much easier in a leader you know like maybe like humility and having a like a bit more of a mature outlook to you know solving the you know whatever problem is at hand and looking a bit more long term <clears throat> what what are your thoughts um i don't know there, there are very different versions of leaders and the definition of a leader has changed through time and you know, the strongest and fastest and loudest of, of the old days is no longer you know welcome nor um nor the most effective way to you know if you're running a coal mine is <laughs> quite different from you know working with you know knowledge workers who, or, or in, very, in any part of the business who, who have choices about where they work and and so you know Thinking and using sort of business vernacular, thinking being a transformation leader, transformative leader, right? How my role as a leader is to help my team succeed rather than thinking through the mindset of they are there to make me successful or, or us just to deliver goals. And so thinking about how I help them achieve. Now, what can I get in? What can I remove that's holding them back? You know, what resources do they need? What support do they need? Which, what clarity and context can I give them to allow them to flourish and therefore their responsibilities to be delivered is, I think, an incredibly you know, effective way of working with you know, talented people who, who want to be empowered and want to have responsibility. Um, and you know, and that's that's how the example was set to me in many of my... my uh, my work experiences over the years and something that I aspire to deliver to today. It's, it is interesting that ultimately it, it, there's a lot of stuff that goes into unpicking the complexity of a situation. I completely agree. And I know there is the the, the, the wonderful literature around dance floor and balcony. I, know, um, I can't remember the author of the book, but I know if you look up dance floor and balcony perspectives, you'll you'll find it pretty quickly. But that kind of sense of being in the thick of it, i.e., on the dance floor, and you know trying to dance well and, and working with all the pet partners around you, not bumping to each other, is one perspective. And you know, most people are, are more naturally capable of doing that. As you get further up the responsibilities, you need to be able to sort of step back from that perspective and you know, sit up on the balcony and observe mm-hmm. how the whole dance floor is moving and are they all in the same time and are they all going the same direction and you know, and then working at how you intervene. And the real skill is when do you do what, right? You know, how often do you mm-hmm. step back from the, from the fray? How do you step back from the daily grind and responding to emails and being seen to be onto something? Right? No. Did you respond on Slack within two minutes of, of you know, somebody seeing you're asking you for your opinion? Versus, you no. Know, I can deal. I can step back from the complexities of the tactical and really understand what's motivating a colleague or motivating the business or or dealing with the uncertainty. And and I, I think this is just sort of a lifetime of of learning to get that right. And you know, the the more effective you can move between those two states of mind the better you are because you have great awareness within business. So out of all the things we've talked about, you know, we've covered off scaling and acquisitions and a bit about leadership there. Um, I guess another thing that I felt you had some strong insights into was there seems to be a number of companies just now in particular that have got like some really great products, but they're not achieving the success commensurate with like the quality and the usefulness of what they have developed mm-hmm. what, what do you think are the key things that are holding those companies back from scaling like what, what what is it that you think is stopping them from achieving their potential uh, t- tough question Rebecca I think um, it's obviously it unique yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, there will be a, there will be a contextual element to each one of those, and it won't. You know, there could be multiple reasons why things aren't working, um, and and therefore you, you know you need to 
you need to explore and you know, keep turning over stones until you find the real reason something is not. You know, is it is it product market fit? Is it the price point? Is it the design? Is it the sales pitch? You know, is it the market is not yet ready to um, you know is to pick up your new you know Uber whatever um, to transform the way that they do things? Is it the resistance of the of the individual? And I, you know, I, without talking specifics, I remember looking at a business that had this incredibly fancy technology about how you would you know, redevelop an oil field. The problem is the person who would understand the technology and be able to utilize it would also be out of the job when the technology is deployed. So you, you're trying to sell you know, Christmas to turkeys and and they just, you know, it, it didn't work because of it. It, it fundamentally, you know, never achieved its full potential, even though as an outsider, you would look at this and go, every big you know, energy player on the planet should be deploying this alongside their very talented people. That's not how it worked. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if your business is not accelerating, you know, there is, you know, a, a really detailed review with without any... Um, biases built in without any sort of emotional attachment of going, but this is what I want it to be and just going, what's not working, right? Now, how do, how do we overcome why we are too slow to market? Why, uh, you know, why our customer acquisition cost is too high? Why is the price point? And then you, know, and then you can presumably solve to that particular point, see if it works, right? And then iterate and iterate and iterate to you know refine the answer because often it will be multiple things that need to be worked in coordination rather than it being one change. It's ne- it's never as simple as one change. Interesting. So I think you know really doing a bit of an audit if you're in that situation and getting an external set of eyes to review things. It's always going to uncover some new truths. I, I, I think so. I'm, I'm in the reading the book at the moment, and it talks about how NASA, on the back of you know, uh, Challenger and Columbia, or Columbia and Challenge, both, you know, and the, the awful tragedies that those two represented, being much, much more aware that they needed fresh eyes. And you know, one of the processes that they brought in was, you know, as employees join NASA, which is supposed to be world class at everything that they do, was to to bring in you know people who haven't yet been institutionalised to look at the processes of designing and to look at the process of, of signing off on is this 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 vehicle ready to go into space, just so that they bring a non institutionalised approach. Mm-hmm. And, and I know many companies will do this, but doing it systematically of every new employee after their first three weeks going in a, in a safe environment, what do you see that's crazy, weird, slow, stupid? Um, what can we be doing better? How do we, how do we tackle doing this? And particularly if those people have you know, a diverse background and have seen different things working in different organisations, that can be incredibly valuable. Of going, I don't mm-hmm. know why you manually enter data into, you know, into Salesforce and then have to manually enter data into another system. Why would you just not link the two? Oh, you can do that. Yes, you can. Boom, and you're away, and you've got you know, you've got productivity gains all the way through. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know quite often, and I also find when you're taking that kind of approach, the there've been instances where some of the most meaningful insights actually come from some of the most junior people. Within the organization, you can't just think, oh, I'm going to get this person because they've been around. They've seen it lots. Was sometimes that degree of um, naivety will really expose maybe, I don't know, like stupid work, for example. Yeah, I know. The Emperor's New Clothes was, um, and or the lack thereof, was pointed out by a child. And, and you know, whilst it's a, a book that you read to your children, it's there's a wonderful lesson in there to you know, be able to call out things that are not optimum and can be improved and and the basics of why are we doing this again and that yeah. can happen not just at a business level but as a team um, and I remember running a, a process back in, all the way back in Woodmack and I had read somewhere something that this was a sort of a clever thing to do so I tried it out on my team and it's like no, what can we stop doing and my team looked at me sort of slightly strange and said what do you mean we can stop doing well, what do we do what what processes and documents and things that we just do because we've always done them that we can just stop and let's see if anybody starts screaming and shouting, whether it be a customer or an internal or an audience. And then we came up with a list of all sorts of things that we just stopped doing. 
We didn't tell anybody about it. And everybody's job was just a little bit better because we weren't doing you know, this low-value work that nobody was appreciating. And, you know, we, and I don't know what the measurements were of hours recovered in a month, but it was, it was meaningful. Um, and it was you know, something that every business should be looking at to sort of know, what, what can we just stop doing? Because you know, just doing it because we've always done it is not, not necessarily a good enough reason. Now, in particular, is a great time to take that approach because there's so much happening with um, AI tools, like like way beyond ChatGPT, um, you know, that really, mm-hmm. really we should leverage that and turn that into an opportunity to have far more exciting, stimulating jobs that allow us to hit goals faster. We shouldn't be looking at that as, oh my God, it's... We're, we're not going to do that anymore. My job won't exist. I don't think that that will be the case. If you, you know, you don't just ha- you don't even have to learn how to leverage AI. You just need to make sure that you're adding like the right kind of value for the future. Mm-hmm. I, I I agree. And you know, Chat GPT is clearly sort of on the tip of everybody's tongue at the moment. But there are you know much more humble. You know productivity gains, whether it be how do you process expenses in your in your financial system. You know, without naming any particular provider, there are fantastic systems that are better than just entering it in a spreadsheet and submitting it through this painful process. You take a photo, you categorize, and it's gone. And yeah. you know, and the AI is there to automatically read the receipt, take the values, identify the currency, and all the things that would tend to you know create stumbling points for somebody having to process a thousand people's receipts every day and all of a sudden it's being automated because the quality of the OCR is good enough to deal with iPhones taking photos of receipts Um, so it's less groundbreaking but at the same time nobody likes doing their receipts in an organisation let alone the finance department and so you can save months of frustration by a very simple deployment of a, a good expense accounting process um, rather than, than missing the opportunity to do that. Totally. So with all of the kind of things that we've discussed, what do you think are currently like the most important attributes for leaders to be thinking about if they're, if they're wanting to have that kind of high growth, scaling, successful company that might be acquired or list? What what do you think is going to help them get there? But like, what can they work on in themselves? Yeah, it, it's, it's it's building on the the, the dance floor balcony analogy, um, and you know, leadership is about transformation, right? Now, it could be incremental transformation, or it could be much much more radical than that. But ultimately, you are changing the way people contribute. You know, whether it be just more or we used to do it in this way, now we do it this way, or your responsibilities used to be this and now they're going to be this. And and that transformation and, and that change represents a challenge to, you know, all sorts of people in an organisation. So the greater awareness of who's affected, how they're affected, you know, how do, how do you um, – support somebody deal with the loss of their responsibilities or, or so forth. You know, the more aware you are, the more sitting on the balcony. And then you know, that means you can be more impactful in delivering what you imagine is the right thing to do. And you know, this is this is a a skill that I think takes, you know, some seem to do it well, you know, early on in their career, um, and perhaps have greater awareness. You know, certainly for me it's taken a long time to really appreciate that no, there's the technical elements of being effective in business and understanding how to read a balance sheet and, and you know, knowing what certain acronyms mean and how does it work. But it all comes down to really how to motivate people and because mm-hmm. you know, everything is done at some level. And so how do you create the environment and understand you know, all the people around you, the stakeholders and the people that they represent, how do you navigate that? And you know, it's negatively called politics, Right. But I don't mean it in a negative connotation. I mean working with people to get things done, and at the right, right pace of change that you're imagining. You know, it's and I've made this mistake. It's very easy to imagine strategic direction tick. We know where we're going. Let's just go do it. And it then takes you months to build the momentum, to create the case, to get people to believe in it, to actually then execute on it. So it, no, it might have been a great piece of work up front to intellectually work out what you do next, 
you know, the mm-hmm. real value is the next 18 months of, of you know, what seemingly is like, God, we, we should have done this 12 months ago. We should have done this. No, 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 no. That, that's the real value, right? When you create that momentum and the change to focus on a new area. So, so being aware of that is, is, is something you should be focused on as every leadership. Totally, uh, you know, people first and you know, work out you know how you can get that momentum and accelerate things as much as possible. I, I agreed, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, not suggesting you go slowly, right? You know, none, none of this is is you can take your foot off the gas, but recognizing that major changes requires people to come with you. And I know announcing something and then expecting it to be done is, is, is not enough. Yeah, and I think that taking that time up front to think something through is really valuable because you're going to have that clarity. You're going to be able to provide like effective context to people as well. And, you know, that, you know, you're not going to achieve anything without their trust. Totally agree. So this has been like absolutely fascinating. There's so many good tips around scaling effectively, what that really means. And, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a CEO or a CPO in particular, and you were thinking about going through like an acquisition selling your company, or if you were thinking about acquiring one and whether or not that was right for you and how you would go about doing that, then a lot there as well, I think that people can take away. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, there have been uh, interesting questions to try and you know, succinctly answer. Hopefully we've got, got somewhere close. No problem, Richard. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and really interesting. I feel we could talk for hours about leadership and um, all of the different you know, frameworks and how to get the most out of people. I think it would be really fascinating. There's there's no end to the learning, right? I know whatever you think might work, there is always a different perspective or something else that's emerging. You know, social social pressures on on what's good is is not a static thing. Um, Very and, true. Which is a good thing, right? And you know, as we you know, seek to be a, a equal and, and have equality and equity in this, um, you know, evolution is a is a big part of good leadership. Exactly. Well, thanks so much. And we will definitely keep in touch and hopefully have you back one day. Brilliant. Thank you very much for inviting me along. Thanks for listening to The Lucent Perspective. I'm Rebecca Hastings, founder and director at The Lucent Group, a tech sector executive search and talent consultancy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. If you're a company looking to hire top technology leaders or you'd like to discuss your next move, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or send